branch of the cinema smorgasbord tree is praising Kane, our chronological journey through the filmography of esteemed actor Carol Kane. On this, our inaugural episode, we take a look at 1971's Desperate Characters. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is my co-host and personal demon, Doug Tilly. Welcome to the episode. Doug, how, how is life right now? What's going on with you? Life is bad uh, in general, <laughs> not just for me, but for the world as a whole. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's one—it's one of the reasons why it's so enjoyable to spend time with you, Liam. To spend time talking about these subjects that we're passionate about, that we care about, and uh, and here we are together once again to talk about the wonderful actress Carol Kane. A brilliant idea for a podcast, Liam. And I have to say, maybe for the first time ever, I have to give you all the credit. Well, that's offensive because you should really be giving me the credit for most things that happen in our little uh, podcasting world. Because who had the idea to do an Eric Roberts related podcast? Even if I'm just looking around, who could have possibly had that idea? (laughs) But let's be clear that you (laughs) would be stupid enough. You got that that ridiculous idea. (laughs) You got that whole thing going without me, so you know I can't take credit for that. But Mm -hmm. for the brilliance of it, that's that's me. I, I brought the shine. I brought the shine. Every time you hear of a podcast devoted to a specific actor or actors, really, I should be getting a cut of that action <laughs> actually i think there was that denzel podcast that i did i had never heard and still have not heard but it, it started right around the same time as eric roberts is the fucking man and i feel like people thought that i was ripping off that podcast but no it was an original bad idea by me doug tilly i think that denzel washington podcast too like ran out of steam right like the, there just aren't that many doug uh, denzel washington movies the the key to a podcast like this is being uh, ridiculously devoted to it, having no other projects that you could devote that much time to, and praising things that are bad. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, we're, uh-huh. we're here on praising Kane, not praising things that are bad, but praising no. uh, the work of someone who is great, Carol Kane. Uh, honestly, this was my idea, and it, it came out of two two things that I found somewhat horrifying when, the, when I thought about it. One was that we have... Four, uh, is that right? Four podcasts dedicated to individual uh, actors on, on this. <laughs> I've stopped counting our podcasts. <laughs> yeah, and yet no, none of them, none of them are, are uh, women. So I, I was like, mm-hmm. we we need we need a we need a female actor to 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 dive into the career of. Uh, I also just realized that for a lot of people who are paying attention to media right now, maybe they're younger than us, maybe they aren't, but 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 if they're in the the current zeitgeist. Uh, Carol Kane is that crazy lady from uh, Kimmy Schmidt. And yes. when I realized that that's what her career had become for a lot of people, and I'm not blaming them for that. I'm just saying that's sort of where the conversation is at. That was frustrating to me because I was aware uh, not just of her career, but I was aware of how little I knew of her career. And I've seen probably eight of her films. Uh, and, and, and then looking into it, realized that she's had – far more than that let alone tv work and all the rest of it so um i i will say up front we're going to be focusing on the film career of carol kane um primarily just because i don't want to spend as much time watching all those tv shows as we could but that well i mean eventually maybe we will move on to tv liam i've been meaning to watch that amazon show hunters from the year 2020 this year that we're recording the podcast so i figure if we do this podcast i'm just working out the numbers for 40 years we should get a chance to watch that <laughs> just doing movies just doing movies anyways um, mm-hmm. but but before we jump into it i wanted to talk you know ask you doug a um why you are also stoked on this idea and b uh what's your introduction was to carol kane when did you first become aware of her as a performer you know the first thing i want to talk about liam is that carol kane's father is named michael so her father's Michael Caine. What do you think about that? But not though, not the Michael Caine though, right? No, no, it's spelled differently as well. Right. But I mean, I feel I still think that's a pretty neat thing. Yeah. So you want me to tell you when I was first aware of Carol Caine as an actress, and I know exactly the role. It's sure. really two roles. Though one of them um, is probably one of the first roles a lot of people think about when it comes to Carol Caine, which is the, in The Princess Bride. But that's such a small appearance uh, comparative right. to the roles that, that she's done in the rest of her career. It's th- her role in Scrooge with Bill Murray, a movie that I watched 
a ton when I was a kid. It didn't matter if it was Christmas or not. I would just watch that movie over and over again. And she has such a memorable appearance. Again, not a huge role in that movie, but certainly a lot more screen time than she got in The Princess Bride. And uh, I remember that having a lot of... um, That it kind of lodged in my memory, that performance. Mostly because I felt like I already had an awareness of her as an actress. I don't know, maybe I encountered her in small roles here and there, even up to that point in the late 80s. Uh, Maybe I'd seen a rerun of Taxi or something like that. But mostly because of the way that she kind of commanded the screen when she was on it. And I mean, she's up against some heavyweights in that movie. But it's a... the reason I'm excited about this as a podcast is simply because, yeah, I've dipped in here and there throughout her career. I've always found her enjoyable and hilarious and uh, interesting as a performer. I I have watched Kimmy Schmidt. I have seen her in recent years and other performances as well. But I don't feel like I have a full grasp on her range. I kind of think of her as a comedic performer only and seeing her stretch those uh, abilities a little in some of the roles that we're going to see in her 70s projects is something that I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I can echo a lot of what you said. Um, I think probably Scrooge for me before Princess Bride, but that's just because I came to Princess Bride later than a lot of people did. Um, and similarly, I'm pretty sure there were reruns of Taxi that I caught and I knew her sure. from that as well. Um, but again, thinking of her primarily as a you know, diverse comedic actress until I finally caught, and this is something we were talking about before the episode, but I want to bring it up again, uh, a film called The Mafu Cage, which uh, is probably familiar to people. If, if anyone's ever done a um, uh, a list of like uh, fem- uh, genre films directed by women, then you've probably seen The Mafu Cage because it is on a short list of upsetting 70s uh, exploitation films that were directed by women. And um, and, I, and I love it. It's it's really well done. It, ha- it plays with a lot of um, not just gender things, but things related to race and culture. And, uh, and it's dark. And I managed to catch it at my first ever X-Fest. And from there... Uh, tried to catch a few more, not a lot still, but a few more of Carol Kane's dramatic performances because she is so truly just, wow, uh, upsetting in that film in the best possible way and, and, and really has an unbelievably memorable performance that it sort of brought me back to appreciating her. And so when as soon as um, we were thinking about new show ideas, she came to mind immediately as someone whose work I, I already like, but I'm also weirdly not as familiar with as I could be. Um, and and I, I I was aware that I didn't know it fully, but looking at her uh, filmography on IMDb, I was, you know, sort of brought even more aware of like, wow, there's some films on here that I've heard of that are very important that I just haven't had a chance to catch out, uh, uh, catch. But there's also films that during uh, different parts of her career that like, I didn't know existed and that's that's always interesting to me when not just that I oh here's something important and I haven't had a chance to see it yet but wow I've never even heard of this and I feel like I should have so now I really want to know why I haven't heard about this and what's going on with it so Liam I have to admit that I don't feel like I have as firm a grasp on the career of Carol Kane Mm -hmm. as I do uh, for someone like Dick Miller, who we have a podcast about, or mm-hmm. Jackie Chan, or Steve Buscemi, mm-hmm. it, like I said before, the breadth of her career is a little um, intimidating, which is interesting to say because we we do have a podcast about Eric Roberts, who has maybe the most intimidating sure. filmography yeah. in terms of sheer size. But the fact is, like even starting from the beginning, there's so many heavy hitters mm-hmm. right from the start of her career, right, especially throughout the 1970s, and it's going to be interesting to talk about them while peppered in between them are movies that. I haven't seen, and some that I've never heard of, uh, and I have to be honest, one of those that I hadn't heard of is the movie that we're going to be talking about today, her very first film role. It's a small role, but I think it's an interesting introduction because it gives us the flavor, again, with the two of us thinking about Scrooge and... uh, you know, the Princess Bride, whatever else, if that was where we were primarily coming from, then we really would go in expecting her to be uh, primarily <laughs> a comedic actress. But her uh, her training is with some of the heavy hitters of the time that she's mm-hmm. she's studying with people who are direct sort of uh, 
disciples of Stanislavski, you know, that she's working with people who would become very important in film and in theater in New York. And she's part of that sort of uh, uh, new American film, you know, renaissance. And, and that's just like something that an association that I think older people than us probably make with her all the time is, oh, here's this very serious actress that made a transition to comedy. You know, and that that's just her new thing that she does is comedy. Whereas for me, that's, you know, I if it wasn't for the, the education of the folks over at Exhume Films, I would have never caught the Mafu Cage and that would have never started me on watching some of her more serious roles and realizing she really is a, a serious actress who then made a transition into comedy, you know? So yeah, that's an it's an interesting thing to 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 realize. Uh, unfortunately, today's film doesn't have as much Carol Kane as I think we would have liked. But it's got all those laughs you were talking about. Oh yeah, it's real real knee <laughs> slapper. So barrel <laughs>, laughs here in desperate characters. Uh, I mean, I think that we have to, and this is something we're both used to because of our Eric Roberts podcast. We had to prepare ourselves for. That being a possibility, especially because, and I don't know if we mentioned that outside of the intro, that this is going to be chronological. We're going right from the beginning of her career, and in a lot of acting careers, you see those bit parts start things off. That won't necessarily be the case with the movies that we're going to be covering over the next few episodes, but it certainly is the case here. Well, and I think that is more interesting, right, to see the ebbs and flows of her career rather than pop in and out and just highlight the extremes we're really seeing like the flow like her biography through these films and this is a this is a memorable first start uh but we'll talk more about that after the break so let's take a quick break we're going to come back and talk about uh frank d gilroy's desperate characters we'll be right back a very gentile party a very gentile party I saw at least three Jews. Your parties are very educational. It's not my party. Yes, it is. Your generation's thing. Oh, for Christ's sake. She's a wicked one, isn't she? You must be young Mike's friends. Let's go see Lonnie up in St. Luke's. Okay. The hospital, the visiting hours are over now. The marriage of a midlife, middle-class, childless couple is in a rut. Sophie has become depressed, frigid, and slightly paranoid, and Otto is stuck in optimistic denial. Things escalate at their summer cottage, but no one dares call it quits. It's 1971's Desperate Characters, directed by Frank D. Gilroy, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright for The Subject Was Roses. Uh, You may have heard of him or his son, Tony Gilroy, who wrote Rogue One, Born Identity, The Devil's Advocate, or maybe his other son, Dan Gilroy, who wrote The Fall, Real Steel, and Nightcrawler. Uh, this film was written by Paul... Real Le- Steel, Liam. I know. I know. Real Steel. It's crazy. And there's nothing wrong with that movie. That's a fun movie. But it's just, it's so strange to think of. It's hard for, of, you know. It's hard for me to have a positive memory of Real Steel. Sorry for this aside, everyone. Uh, <laughs> because I saw it in the... Um, the dome IMAX at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. And that film is not an IMAX movie, let alone a movie you should see in <laughs> dome IMAX. And so all I could think about the whole time was this looks terrible. Why am I in here? <laughs> this film, however, was written by Paula Fox and Frank D. Gilroy. Uh, it stars Shirley MacLaine, uh, Kenneth Mars, Seda Thompson, Jack Somak, Gerald S. O'Loughlin. These all sound like people who would be on the stage in 1971, by the way. Like, these are all very sort of those. And then way, way, way down, if we were to go down far enough, we would see Carol Kane. Uh, Doug has included in her notes uh, one comment from Roger Ebert about the film, written in a style of dialogue that sounds as if it's it's being recited, not spoken. (laughs) So, uh, you know, Doug, before we get into, like, actually criticizing this film, I want to take a second to talk about something that I think is particularly interesting in and of itself, which is as soon as this movie started, I thought, oh, yay, 70s New York City. Did you have a same mm-hmm. response? Oh, yeah. No, it, it, I mean, it, it. when I think of the hallmarks of 70s American cinema, uh-huh. and I love the 70s, I think a, lo- a lot of film fans kind of uh, mark that period uh, that we're into in watching this movie as as kind of the highlight of all film as an art form, right? The 70s is 
the you know uh, uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, right? I mean, we we're we're talking about the time when independent creators had the most creative freedom. And when I think about that in my mind, the image of 70s New York City is what I see. Yeah, I think more than even though there are some classic L.A. films um, that are probably just as important, you know, we could lift nah. up. Stop, stop. <laughs> we can lift up any number of L.A. films that are as iconic. They don't seem to hit me in the same way as 70s New York. There's just something about the chaos. And and that's historically tied as well. Like this film has hints and echoes of what we would know about the 70s in New York, which is um, true economic uh, clash and disparity massive rises in crime a city that was looking for money from the federal government or might like shut down as a city but was still sure. one of the largest cities in the world so that that weird combination of cosmopolitan and yet um total bad land uh crime area <laughs> and and i think that's present in this film too not just in the exteriors but in the interiors like the the idea that their home is in is in this neighborhood in brooklyn that is maybe on the edge, that they're early gentrifiers of this neighborhood. And when we see the outside, it's like a combo of like kind of yuppies, but also trash all over the place. And then you get in their home and Doug, was this not one of the more beautiful urban set homes that you've ever seen in a film? I mean, absolutely. It's so interesting because I have this romanticized notion of the filth of New York in the 1970s, you know, that like that is part of what I most appreciate about seeing New York at this time. But this is a very unromantic movie, not only between the two main characters, but in regards to how it views New York as a whole. And that's something that I hope we get a little time to talk about. They have this amazing apartment, right? Uh, but it's also it's like this haven, this this kind of island in the midst of what is a what the movie presents as kind of this lawless, uh, uh, filth-ridden uh, uh, wasteland, almost, and and anything that invades their little space seems to be this this huge crushing um, force coming from outside that that is affecting their lives, and it it it, it sort of is this this invasion that they are combating throughout the entire movie, which, again, I think is a perspective of a very, a very kind of privileged um, idea of what it's like to be in New York in this area of the 1970s, maybe from someone who already had a Pulitzer Prize at that point and what they saw New York as being and how it's intruding on their lives, or maybe I'm misinterpreting it entirely. It's hard to say, and I think we're going to get into that in a second, about, um, you know, we both felt this film reeked of white nonsense but it's not clear <laughs> it's not clear if the film is criticizing that nonsense embracing that nonsense or documenting that nonsense and i think right. i think we could we we can get into that let's talk a little bit more here the the description i read was uh, you know it wasn't very full but basically this is a film um that has a number of events in it and and dynamic tensions <laughs> in it that don't go anywhere there's no there's in a in a real sense the development of what's going on between the characters and any actual plot is uh, circumstantial. So uh, we have a couple. They live in uh, Brooklyn. The husband is a lawyer, and he runs a firm with one of his longtime friends. And his friend is described by himself and other people as a kind of like bleeding heart liberal sort of person. Yeah. Now, what does that actually mean? It's hard to say uh, within the context of the film. We don't actually get to hear much from his friend, whose character's name is Charlie. Doesn't get to say much as far as what he actually believes in. All we know is that Otto, who is um, uh, Sherilyn McLean's character, Sophie's husband, he would like the lawyer really business. So as he's they're both lawyers, but as a business, he would like the business to be more serious, less focused on right. helping people, which is a weird thing to say, but that's just what he says. Less focused on helping people, more focused on clients who make money. And Charlie seems to think that he is, uh, to put it lightly, a heartless fascist, maybe? Um, <laughs> or at least not a kind person. So basically, w the movie sort of focuses on Shirley MacLaine's character who wants to take care of this cat, this stray cat, and is bitten by the cat. And as they go through the rest of the film, certain things happen that sort of 
as you very astutely pointed out, represented represent the world smashing into their isolated world. You know, so whether that's they're at a party and some people have broken into the party. Don't, it's not clear that they stole anything, but they were just there. And specifically, it seems probably Carol Kane's character is the person who's uh, and, and her man friend have broken into this party, but it's never confirmed if it was them or not. Or, um, uh, you know, walking around with Charlie. She walks around in the middle of the night with his partner, Charlie, and Charlie sort of complains about their world. Or she goes to visit friends and they're estranged. Uh, their marriage is, is, is uh, separated, but they now are friendly again in a weird way or as you uh said they are in the description says they go to their um uh summer home and it's been broken into there's there's all these events but it's not clear that the events are moving in any particular direction other than these two people are very unhappy they're unsure of their place in the world they're unsure of who they are in in that world and they don't know what to do next, and that just seems to be the whole film. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, it's. I think the thing I struggle with in regards to this movie is how sympathetic we are supposed to be to their plight. I mean, again, these are well-off people. Uh, she works as a book translator. He's a lawyer, as you mentioned already, and they seem to be very well-off. Um, but they are very much in a rut, and the fact that they describe their their marriage as kind of this this loveless thing. I mean, it's it's kind of feels like they're hanging on to each other for dear life because they've seen what it's like outside of their relationship and maybe they're afraid of what that could be or maybe they're afraid of starting over because they're a little bit older. And I there's even that moment you mentioned so so we see Sophie go to visit her friend who's a little bit older and like you mentioned her ex-husband sort of they're friendly and they still hang out together, but they have kind of a combative relationship because they're they're exes. And there's a point where they start bickering, and in the midst of it, Sophie just gets up and leaves, uh, and they don't even notice that she does that until after she's gone, and she leaves in a hurry. And you wonder, you know, what is she seeing for her own future? What, you know, at that point, it's already been revealed that she had had an affair that's already ended. Um, I do like th- that the movie is not necessarily judgmental about that, about these kind of, you know, as these are desperate people, as they say, and they're looking for that connection with others, but they also seem very afraid of engaging with the world outside of their kind of very tight circle that they have. Well, it's a film that seems very knowledgeable, not knowledgeable, but cognizant, let's say, of um, the larger social issues at play, that they're in a context of uh, of deep poverty, of crime, of uh, racial disparity, of people struggling for equal rights and struggling for opportunities that have been uh, denied to them um, over time. And yet the characters in this film uh, aren't sure that they should be bothered with all that. That seems to be the general attitude is there's a lot of stuff going on and we would kind of wish that it would stop going on so that we could live our lives. You know what I mean? And so what what is difficult, I think, for interpretation's sake, um, and maybe this doesn't matter, maybe it does, but to me, it, it, it is certainly how I'm thinking about the film, is that um, are we meant to understand why they feel this way? Understand why they would rather just kind of like you know be doing their own thing and not worry about what's going on in the world or should we be sitting there going like you know 1971 the world's still a little bit on fire over here you know and y'all are just kind of like feeling sad at your evening party you know what i mean like there's there's a sense in which um it's unclear if the generalized unhappiness of our characters is something we're meant to identify with or be disturbed by yeah yeah does that make sense it does but i mean maybe the fact that we're unsure about that is part of the point right as well i mean it's it's difficult there is a sequence in this movie where there's a knock on sophie and otto's door and it's a young black guy who wants to use their telephone and he comes in and there's this sense of tension because we don't know what this guy is, is all about. You know, we, we are suspicious of him. They're suspicious of him. They let him in. And I guess in some ways that suspicion is is justified because but he, he basically wants to make a phone call to find out what time a train is. But before he leaves, he, he 
hustles basically i mean it it's hard to say for sure that it's a hustle but it suggests the suggestion is that that there, uh, that it is like ten dollars out of auto because he can't afford the train that he's going on but he, he like also gives his address so he can mail the the money back afterwards but i mean sophie really kind of of completes that story after this guy leaves where she says you know when you give the money it's a gift you know you can't really expect it back and what's it to them they have the ten dollars that they can afford but it it also is this kind of more direct intrusion that will be kind of uh, amplified by their summer home and and the invasion of that that this is a person that they invited in with this but came along with it this sense of both danger and exploitation and it's a it that to me is the thing that kind of stuck in my throat a little bit because it's just like like that is you're in New York City. It's alive with people. It's alive with culture and it's alive with things that are happening and by locking that front door you can't you can't deny the things that are happening but it feels like they are distanced from that to some extent. But I wonder if I that scene actually for me it's funny you bring that up because that's one of the scenes that made me think that the film was more aware of its context in that maybe in that um <clears throat> Otto has no reason to let that guy in. He's he, he he could very easily say, no, nah, I'm good, and just leave him there, and I don't think he's committing an injustice. The reality is Otto is uncomfortable with the reality of who he is. Otto is, at his heart, a lazy conservative lawyer. He doesn't do work around the office. He doesn't want to help people. He just wants to get paid, and so he wants clients that aren't a lot of work that he can get paid from. And yet, we see that as an audience. The movie goes out of its way to make sure we know that's true about him. Right. But he's unaware of that's who he is. It, the conflict with Charlie is not just that Charlie is different than him. It's that Charlie sees who he is, calls it out, and Otto is in denial that that's who he is right. as a person. And that's what's going on in this situation. Otto knows full well that if this dude hits him up for any amount of money, he's going to be mad about it. But he can't right. admit it. And so he has to let the guy in under this pretense. Whereas if you're the kind of person... Who knows if this dude wants anything from me, I'm going to be sour. Then don't let the guy in. Let him go to the right. next house. It's it's the 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 reality here. I'm reminded of of uh, James Baldwin, who talks about how uh, the, that it, it's it's not that um, that black people don't know who white people are. It's that white people don't know who white people are. And so that's why they can't deal with the hearing it. It's like they, they can't face who they are in this sense. In the film, that scene sort of shows like, you know, this guy is putting on this. He, he's, he's putting on this act. He's putting on this performance just because he feels like he has to. And then right. Otto's annoyed with the performance. But you are the person who demands the performance. Even in the fact that you're sitting there being like, oh, this guy trying to trick me. Well, of course he's trying to trick you. You've created this whole scenario where he feels, you know, ashamed to be like, yo, can I get 10 bucks to, you know, get the train to whatever it is, Albany or wherever he's going? You know, and, and so it's like, rather than this, this just being a fair interaction, We've created the scenario, but we can't face what, what we are. And I think that's sort of what's going on in the whole movie. Even her getting bit by the cat, it's like uh, a metaphor in the sense of like, this is a wild cat. And because you have given the cat a treat, you expect the cat to not be what it is. But the cat is what it is. And then you get bit. And then the whole movie, she's just like, it's fine. It's fine. Her hand's like clearly infected. And, and <laughs> everywhere she goes, people are like, yo, what's going on with your hand? And the whole movie, she just can't live with it. And part of that is because she can't admit she can't be into a space where she's with people and her. I mean, both of them can't. Their barriers are down. The scene where they're in the ER is yes. one of the more telling scenes. Just being mm -hmm. around normal people and the chaos they bring. And, and in that sense, uh, this is where I think the movie is slightly cynical, is that I think it's um, I think it's a bit of a, a knowing indictment of New York in like, uh, this is the craziness that's happening in the ER. You know, this is what New York is really like. And yet you're in your fancy house in Brooklyn pretending like everything's OK. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So in that sense, I still think the movie is kind of cynical. But, I, I, you know, we've gotten a lot into what this movie is about. But let's talk about our experience of watching the movie. What's interesting is, for me, the whole movie I kept being like, God damn, this movie is some white nonsense. Like, this is really some <laughs> some privileged ass whatever. Everything everything that the characters do feels that way, that they are so un 
unable to deal with the very situation that they've put themselves in. On the other hand, I didn't hate watching it. Doug, how did you feel watching this movie? I was miserable watching it because this is a movie about miserable people, you know, going through miserable experiences together. But watching something that's miserable doesn't necessarily make me miserable in retrospect, (laughs) by which I mean I appreciated its intent and I appreciated that what I was watching was engaging uh, in a very real sense. Um, And, you know, and this is something that I'm sure we were going to talk about anyway, but I mean, we're both middle-aged people. Yep. Both you and I. You know, you you have a, a child, but you know, you're married. We're, we are in the similar boat to what these people are in terms of their circumstance. Uh, you know, things are chaotic. The world is a very chaotic place. So there is, you know, relatable material there, even if the the kind of loveless and uh, uncommunicative situation that they're in doesn't reflect our realities. Um, but you know, it's something that there are moments of this where I did feel um you know kind of uh, a relationship with these people and a similar kind of mindset and i could see what they were going through but then at sometimes i felt so alienated from the perspective i just wanted to shake the characters you know just shake him out of this inway and just say like talk to each other or you know just say what you're actually feeling that sort of thing um and and you know really i i felt kind of at odds with the movie a lot of the mm-hmm. times, but that's okay. I mean, there's a lot of movies I feel at odds with that I can still appreciate, and I think that this is one of them. Though I will say this isn't a movie that I'm likely to revisit. I know I've said that in other podcasts that we've done, and I that's not a condemnation of it. It is a very unpleasant ex- thing to experience when you're in the midst of it. Um, but it's also something that does feel like a reflection of the reality of, of certain people in 1971. Wouldn't have been me in 1971. Don't think it would be my parents in 1971, but you know this does feel like it comes from a real place. It just ha- happens to be one that's kind of estranged from the real place I'm in. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the slight difference with me is I didn't find it unpleasant, but I what I what I realized while watching it is that um, at some level I didn't really care what the movie's perspective was on the mm. characters. I was making a decision about the characters, and and that's and, interesting. And that it didn't really, because that's what partly what I was getting distracted with a little bit was like, okay, these people are fucking in. They're in a rut, and it's a rut I feel bad about. But it's, it's is you know, people depending on who you talk to, sometimes people can describe privilege as its own kind of of cage. So if you are if you're really sold on being a man in the most patriarchal sense. That's both a privilege and a limitation. There are certain things you cannot do if you want to maintain that position. Uh, in the same way, if you're invested in being a bourgeois white person in Brooklyn in 1971, you have certain expectations on what you can feel and what you can do and what the world is about. And really, in this context, we're given these two options. You can be a bleeding heart liberal who faces the disdain of your friends, uh, but doesn't do anything particularly radical to change the world, just feels really bad about the way the world sure. is. Or you cannot give a damn. You can just decide none of it fucking matters and you're just going to make your money and be, you know, disgusted at the drunk people asleep on the sidewalk outside of your house. And really, these people are given within the context of this movie those two options. The only other way of being in the world we see is the older couple who are these old radicals who used to be like about changing the world and they have not changed the world. And their response to having not changed the world is simply to focus on their interpersonal dynamics and beat those fight that war for the rest of their lives they'll they'll die having the same arguments but being comfortable in those same arguments there's, there's some re- there's a really sad moments within yeah. those interactions particularly you know again the, this is an estranged you know formerly married couple and the husband just comes around sometimes uh, i guess he's yeah he's married once again and it's not that they're having an affair together but the the claire the 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 woman she mentions that her husband will will climb into bed with her and put his arms around her and sometimes she'll wake up in the middle of the night and feel happy and i mean that's a really heartbreaking sort of idea but it is also very much an extension of what sophie and otto are going through right? i mean you could totally even if they're not formally radical in the same way, they have this kind of relationship where 
they feel tied to each other, even if they don't really like each other. In fact, yeah. I think she even says that she hates him at at sometimes. Well, it's, I, I mean, I also I have a, sorry, sorry. Please continue. I I also think there's a bit of a lampooning there of the sexual revolution. These are two revolutionaries yeah. in which the male is so upset and turned off by the sexual freedom of his young lover like that his new wife is so sexually open that it kind of bums him out and he escapes to his ex-wife's house just to get away from all the fucking and i think that is one of the more insightful criticisms in the movie is this feeling of like that that young radicals at the time are having trouble connecting to old radicals and one of the issues besides drugs is fucking uh and that these two things drugs and fucking are upsetting to older commies who don't quite understand <laughs> what, what's happening uh, he's terrified that someone's going to drug him at his because yep. he's a teacher that one of his students are going to drug him because they keep talking about drugs i mean l- l- lunacy right but i mean it also like you said very reflective of what you were just saying i also so i was saying all that before though also to tie into the idea that um part of me really enjoyed all of this sort of joyride of seeing stuff that was very upsetting in a way or <laughs> or it was sort of like distancing like look at these fucking fucks and all that they're going through uh but there is something i wanted to discuss with you which was the performances and, and i'm really thinking mm. about this quote that you included from roger ebert because i actually think it's quite accurate that there's a bunch of dialogue in which people are just saying things to each other and it's unclear that what you would call that is conversation because conversation is a dynamic interaction and this just feels like people saying things on the other hand yeah i was kind of like i don't know impressed with some of the performances doug how oh, did yeah. how did you feel about the the not just the performances but how they worked with this strange script this emotional distancing uh, meant that some of these characters, it feels like they're talking to themselves when they're actually talking to another person. And what they say, you know, the other person will follow up, but won't necessarily, you know, continue the thought processes of the first person. So everyone, you know, that emotional distance between the characters is echoed in some of this this dialogue that, that they say. And I think some of the actors handle that better than others. But, I mean, I think Shirley MacLaine is incredible uh as sophie and this movie i think is a lot more sympathetic to her character than it is to otto i don't think we're under any illusions that otto is a likable person maybe he was at one point uh i will say that even though i think shirley mclean is the better performance here that for me kenneth mars was more of a revelation i already knew that shirley mclean was a good actor kenneth mars to me has always been like uh, a, a comedic performer in like Mel Brooks movies and in the producers and in young Frankenstein and things like that. And when I see him, I think of him as this kind of ridiculous character, but Otto is such a serious character. I mean, almost serious to the point of being comical to some extent, but like, he's just a very serious guy and he's also kind of mean, right? I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll yell at Sophie and tell her to shut up. And, um, and, and he seems right on the edge of just blowing up without ever actually doing it, which to me is the kind of tension that, you know, if you've ever been with, say, if your parents were fighting or you were at someone else's house where their parents were fighting, I got those kind of, those those rumbles inside myself, of that kind of anxiety about watching these two people. It's just like, will you guys just like work it out? So I really do think these two lead performers are, are the performances are outstanding. I think that Gerald S. O'Loughlin as Charlie, I think does a really good job in his kind of one major sequence as well. Uh, you can tell that him and and Sophie have this really close relationship where they're very open with one another. And I really like that simply because after seeing so many people be very distant to each other, it's nice to have two people interact where they do feel comfortable enough to admit what they're thinking and admit what they're feeling simply because there's so little of that in the movie as a whole. I think it's a well-acted movie overall, like very well-acted. It's just that I didn't feel... Uh, I didn't care enough about the fates of the people involved sure to 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 really you know be so engaged that i'm like wow i'm what's gonna happen next though i will say that just when i was starting to feel a little bit of that distance they gave us a little bit of hope of reconnection with this trip out to the summer home um and where it feels like sophie and otto are kind of rekindling something and they really have this kind of uh, moment of bonding while they're going out there. And you're like, wow, maybe there was something there. Maybe that's something that can be again. And, of course, that movie is like, oh, no, not only is your place broken into, then we'll get some marital rape. Then we'll get all these tense, horrible scenes. I mean, it really does just get really kind of dark and unpleasant afterwards. But I, I do like that kind of rhythm of the movie at that point. Just when I was feeling a little disengaged, it kind of drew me back in again. 
Yeah, and I think the summer home thing is really interesting because um, <clears throat> it sort of breaks down this idea in the film that's not, again, it's not that it's coming from the script, but it's like what the characters are feeling, which is that the city is where things are getting hostile and scary, which which isn't inaccurate. I mean, the New York City was not particularly safe in, in 1971, but the idea that they go to their rich people escape, this thing that they've probably poured money into and fostered as a way away, and it's actually just like no safer in its own way and even more the hostility of the people who actually live in your yes. dream world that they're like yeah it got broken into whatever fuck you like they just don't care at all yeah and i uh-huh. i just yeah it's it. like they even like downplay all the like, like it was a real invasion they trashed this place like literally everything it's just like well at least they didn't steal anything at least they didn't take all your yeah. liquor that sort yeah. of thing or maybe you shouldn't have left all that liquor around you're just tempting them that sort of thing and this, this, I, I, I think. Now we've talked about this before, but I'm, I'm not a big fan of any sexual violence in a film. You know, I think sometimes it's there and it's, it's rough. In this particular case, I will say it was a real reminder of Otto's need for control. Like that scene, I think is, is one of the more blatant ones in which it's like, oh yes, yeah. this, this character just needs to feel like he's in charge somewhere, that he has some power somewhere. It is. In that way, maybe it's a little too on the nose for some viewers, but for me, I just thought, you know, not that the scene is is that makes the scene any less unpleasant and difficult to watch, but it 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 narratively was, uh, in my mind, like made sense. Like, yep, this is who Otto is. He needs to dominate in order to feel something because he feels so violated right now. Um, mm-hmm. And and I really sort of respected that choice to some extent, and of course the performances were great. Um, and I, and I have to agree overall. I think the performances were great as well. I think Shirley MacLaine obviously is amazing in this. I think Kenneth Mars is great too. Um, and for me, I think the disconnect of the dialogue in many places was fitting. I just think there's a bit of a um, there's a bit of a of a thing where the sometimes the lines feel a little too uh, sure of themselves, you know. That sometimes that the, the 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 husband the ex husband of her friend the way that he talks was so ultra stylized yeah. in a lot of that dialogue and I know he's supposed to be an English professor and and uh, even in that Ebert review he mentions people like William Buckley who really did have that kind of a heightened way of speaking but I will say that and this is not a condemnation of that actor it's just that that dialogue is it just doesn't ring true to how people actually talk which again you don't need that necessarily in a movie uh but that that one i think was maybe a little bit too far for me to be able to accept oh this person is just talking like they talk all the time yeah i got to i got to agree with you there i think he did an okay job as a performer but i think that was one of the places where i felt in the script oh, this is a guy who works in theater. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there were certain points, parts that just felt like uh, not, they didn't work in a movie for me. Uh, and, you know, that that is what it is. Um, uh, well, there's probably, I mean, uh, look, 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 Doug, look. I think as much as I actually did kind of, like, find this an interesting thing to watch and it's an interesting almost time capsule of a certain kind of New York um not only is there a lot of white nonsense on display but i think the cynicism towards the time period that like Mm. um all we see of the youth and and i'm specifically doing this for the listener as a transition because we we need to talk about carol kane in this film (laughs) all we see of the youth is the echoes of them they are sex crazed drug addled crazy people or they break into a party where they don't belong and say awkward, weird things. Yes. And that's that's the youth in 1971. And I get that that is the anxieties of the people who are watching this movie, as people who um, the moment has passed them by, and that moment might be the opportunity for change or that moment might be a, a normal Americana that they associate with the 50s or whatever that is. We see a lot of different shades of people who have been left behind you know, soft liberals or former radicals or uh, conservatives who want to maintain the status quo. Everyone is in a world where they don't really understand what's going on. And the people who are setting the stage, again, appear to them to be drug-addled sex addicts. I mean, totally inscrutable, right? People yes. who, who are speaking in a way that they can't even parse out. Yes. It's like they're literally speaking a different language. Yes. 
But watching that now in 2020, I'm sitting there going, "Come on, guy, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> Come on." And you can you can listen to Lizzo, right? I mean, you can work out Jesus, some of what they're talking yeah. about. <laughs> I mean, and and, the, and realizing like these these fucking these people that you're thinking of as aliens, you're literally treating them like they're mm. aliens that you couldn't possibly understand will be Republican senators in like a decade anyway. You know, like they will they will become evangelicals they'll join a church and become evangelicals they'll be the the uptight parents of the 80s like they're not aliens they're just going through a thing and you're going through it too everyone in the country in 1971 is going through a thing just like we're going through a thing now and it's it's there's there it's serious but it's not that serious and that's mm-hmm. how has it ended i just thought the deep level of cynicism the deep level of <laughs> life has lost a certain amount of meaning was like kind of corny it, again that's not to say the movie's bad but just in retrospect i'm going it's not that deep buddy it's fine you're gonna get through this don't worry it'll be okay it also it, i mean it very is representative of a mindset that does still exist yes. today, which is that is is like you you are suspicious of younger people so in this movie they present these younger people as being the kind of aggressors when i mean in real life they probably just are not paying attention to you at all because they're interested in their own things and their own culture and their own friendships but you know there's lots of of i mean i know it in my own life and i probably certainly feel it sometimes in my own life where i feel like i'm being threatened by young people simply by them existing yeah, they're gonna they're gonna make uh, everything we cared about irrelevant and replace it with TikTok, right. and that's just how yeah. it goes, man. That's just what it is. <laughs> um, speaking of young people, one of the young people we're presented in this movie is a brief uh, performance from Carol Kane. Doug, tell me about that and what you thought of it. Well, I mean, there isn't a lot to say. So Carol Kane was about eighteen at the time that she was in this film. She she's been acting at that point since she was a child on the stage, but this is her. First performance in a film. She's credited as young girl. Uh, as you've already referred to, there's a part where Sophie and Otto, they go to a party. This young girl is there with a young man. And they basically look at her, like, look at, at uh, Shirley MacLaine's character like she's like a zoo exhibit. That that she has, you know, th- they are basically visiting this party like it's a zoo. So that they, you know, there's very much this distance. They do not respond to Sophie's questions they barely acknowledge that she exists outside of something to be examined, and then they just leave the room, again, without even acknowledging her existence. Uh, and the whole sequence takes, what, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes? But I will say that Carol Kane, even at that point, was very striking looking. And I don't mean in terms of... of um, attractiveness or anything along those lines she just has a very distinct look that it's hard to take your eyes off of her and she certainly looks a lot older than 18 even in this movie even though she is playing a young girl but um but it is um as you said representative of potentially the mindset of the director writer frank d gilroy but certainly representative of the mindset of these characters Mm -hmm. sophie and otto who seem completely estranged from the youth of that time I agree. I, it is a small role, but I, I would suggest for most people who saw this film, I bet they didn't forget Carol Kane. You know, they might mm-hmm. not have even known her name, but they probably thought, man, that that young girl at that party was she has a piercing intensity in that scene, delivering lines that are meant to sound like just the blathering of a drug addled whatever. <laughs> and yet you're just like, well, whatever she's saying, she believes it. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know how I feel about it, but she's there. She's very present. And uh I loved it. I, I, it's so funny because I am overall, as I am always when we're doing a podcast like this, a little disappointed that we didn't get more of our of our focus. <laughs> However, it certainly was memorable, and it's not a surprise to me that she would go on from this role to get other actual meaningful roles, to get more and more roles that were um, uh, significant. And, and so uh, it, it's funny. It's a weird thing of like, yes, do I want more? Yes. However, this is certainly not a an unmemorable thing. It's like she stands out in in a very sort of significant way. It's interesting to think that within just a few years she'll have been nominated for an Academy Award and like literally like in a 3-year period she's going to go from a 2-minute, you know, kind of babbling sequence in Desperate Characters. I mean, and and just between 
now in 1975, we're going to see her appear in some very notable 70s, kind of defining 70s movies in a lot of ways. So it's really inter- it's really going to be interesting to see, you know, her evolution as a film actress from here going forward. It's true. I'm pretty excited, Doug. Um, well, that was the first episode of Praising Kane, a chronological look at the work of Carol Kane. Doug, what's next for us on this show? Next is one of those defining movies of the 1970s, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, Art Garfunkel, and Anne Margaret. It's Carnal Knowledge from the year 1971, directed by Mike Nichols, on the next episode of Praising Cain. Wow, what a what a jam packed with significant names. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you just—it's like, wait, wow, there's a lot going to be a lot to talk about there. Um, uh, yeah, between Jack Nicholson and uh, Mike Nichols, uh, and then you squeeze in a million other people that are important. It's like, wow, we're already. I mean, the interesting—the interesting thing about that movie is that it has a very small cast, and almost every one of the names in it are, you know, uh, recognizable and, sure. and kind of you know, representative of a level of fame in the 1970s. Well, we're so glad that you joined us here on our first episode of this particular show, but this is just one of many shows uh, as part of Cinema Smorgasbord. Doug, if they want to know more about some of the other shows on as a part of uh, this project, where would they go? Well, you can find our latest episodes over at CinePunks.com. If you want to check out more episodes of the Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, you can go over to CinemaSmorgasbord.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. If you could leave us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate that very much. We also are on Twitter. You can follow us at CinemaSmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. Or you can search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook as well. Get the latest news. Make a recommendation of a podcast we should create or maybe a film that should be covered on one of the current existing podcast but yeah certainly subscribe and tell your friends if you enjoyed this show check out some of the other shows on cinepunks.com and maybe consider becoming a patron um we uh have a whole family of shows and some interesting writing as well so go ahead and check that out we really appreciate it uh if you want to follow me on twitter it's at liam rules r-u-l-z if you want to follow doug it's at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-t-i-l-l-e-y <laughs> and we really appreciate you uh checking us out uh and like doug said f- feel free to uh leave us a review we want to know what you guys think send us an email whatever it is we want to get some feedback from y'all uh and we're, we're definitely taking ideas we're, we're listening to all all things and and we might reject it and make fun of you on the air but whatever it is you should definitely hit us up thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you another time bye 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 They're selling postcards of the hanging They're painting the passports brown The beauty parlor is filled with sailors The circus is in town Here comes the blind commissioner They've got him in a trance One hand is tied to the tightrope walker